Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Hey, just a quick heads up that this podcast contains content that some people might find disturbing. So please take care while listening. As a Jewish person myself, I know a little bit about ultra-Orthodoxy. And this is way more extreme. It takes purity to the highest possible level. From Post Media and Antica Productions, this is True Crime Byline. I'm Kathleen Goltar. When you're a crime reporter, it's not that unusual to be assigned a missing persons case. But a few years ago, Montreal Gazette journalist Jason Magder got a very unusual assignment. Rather than one person being gone, an entire community was missing. For more than a decade, an ultra-Orthodox Jewish group called Lev Tahor had called the small, remote town of St. Agathe, Quebec, home. But one day in the winter of 2013, the group suddenly upped and vanished. Nearly 250 people had climbed aboard buses and driven off, abandoning their homes in the middle of the night. At the time, it was unclear why. But as Jason investigated, sinister details began to emerge. Stories of child abuse, of children being taken away by their parents, and of people being sedated with antipsychotic drugs. And as these things came to light, a clearer picture came into focus. Lev Tahor was no ordinary religious sect. People were calling it a cult. Jason would go on to cover this story for the next two years. But as he drove from Montreal to St. Agathe for that first time, all he was thinking about was, where did these people go? It was a very strange scene when I got there. It was snowy, it was cold. And we saw a few people dressed as you might expect uh, ultra-Orthodox people to be dressed, tying together some pieces of furniture and loading them up into a moving van. But for the most part, all the houses that we saw, it was about a dozen or so, maybe two dozen, they were empty and there was no one there. This place might have felt strange to Jason, but it seemed that wherever the members of this dedicated and isolated community landed, they never fit in. They had come to Canada after leaving Israel and then Brooklyn, always moving to a new place under a cloud of suspicion. It is a long and convoluted story, but from what we know, it starts in Israel in the mid-80s with this then-young man named Shlomo Helbrands, who's by many accounts kind of, you know, a very charismatic guy. Maya Croth is a freelance reporter in Atlanta who's looked into Lev Tahor as well. She told me that Shlomo Hellbrands had been attracted to Orthodox Judaism from an early age. 
And by the mid-1980s, he has founded his own yeshiva and called it Lev Tahor, which means pure of heart. A yeshiva is a Jewish school focused on religious education. It was kind of founded on this belief that modernity corrupts the spirit. So he's adhering to a pretty traditional, austere version of Judaism. But most of all, what sets him apart is that he believes that Israel should not exist as a Jewish state, that it was against God. So they were opposed to the establishment of the state of Israel. So it didn't take long for them to decide that they should not be in Israel. So they moved to Brooklyn. Shortly after that, the leader of the sect, Rabbi Shlomo Helbrenz, was deported from the U.S. because he was convicted of a kidnapping charge, uh, basically luring away a 13-year-old boy from his family to join his sect. And he ended up in Canada because he pleaded for refugee status, saying he would be persecuted in Israel because he's against the establishment of the state of Israel. And and let's dive a little bit further into their beliefs beyond the anti-Zionist beliefs. Ultra-Orthodox, I mean, they lived a very, very, what they would say is a pious life. So can you just give me a sense of what they believed and sort of how their rules in their communities were set up? You have to understand that Lev Tahor is, uh, they bill themselves as an ultra-Orthodox sect. But as a Jewish person myself, I know a little bit about ultra-Orthodoxy. And this is way more extreme. It takes purity to the highest possible level. That meant that the men and women were almost always separated. The women would cover their hair with a scarf and their robes reached the floor. The men wore traditional Jewish clothing with long beards and big black hats. Yiddish is the language that's spoken uh, most in the community. And the boys are, are forced to go and learn how to pray and, and to read uh, the Torah, while the girls are forced to learn how to do things around the house, essentially. It's very, it's very, very much a throwback to uh, centuries ago. <laughs> In some ways, they live their lives in much the same way as Hasidic Jews all over the world do. But just below the surface, something sinister was going on. So tell me about the people who were living there. Well, it all seemed to be run by the rabbi, Rabbi Shlomo Helbrands. He sort of ruled with, with an iron fist. He had a few underlings, but uh, it was basically whatever he decided was, was what went. If people disobeyed or didn't do what he was he wanted them to do, he would remove them from their families. He would remove children from their families for weeks or even months at a time. And we're not talking about 12-year-olds and 13-year-olds. We're talking about 2-year-olds and even babies. And he used that as, as a form of punishment. There was one boy who was very young and, and acting out, and he was moved from one family to another every week and every time they basically picked him up and dragged him and he was he would be crying from from house to house basically one of the uh, members that i met told me that he was forced to hit the children in school when they weren't learning according to the ways that the rabbi wanted the quebec authorities had heard some of these things too a 17-year-old girl was brought to the Children's Hospital in Montreal. She told the people there that she was beaten by her brother, who was the rabbi's son, and forced to marry 
someone 15 years older than she was when she was 15. And this girl was also pregnant. Authorities tried to speak to her, and it appeared that she had been drugged or something. She was incoherent. She couldn't speak to two people. When youth protection officials went to investigate, they found other upsetting things, like sheets soaked in urine and fungus growing on young girls' feet. And then there were the reports of children being drugged. Apparently, leaders of the group were giving members prescription drugs to keep them calm. That's when youth protection authorities tried to rectify the situation, tried to get them in school, first of all, tried to get them to follow basic health guidelines. And um, when it became clear that this group was not listening, that's when they tried to seize some of the children. This is when the group decided to leave and when Jason caught wind of the story. By the time he got to St. Agath, it was basically deserted. Only a few members had stayed behind. And I spoke with one of the leaders, uh, Yoel Weingarten was his name. Uh, I would like to say my voice about, about the situation. And he said, you know, we're, we're leaving because Quebec is discriminating against us. And we don't believe in the Zionist theory, in the Israeli theory. That's why they are, are against us. You know, they, they inspected our children, and our children have fungus, but not more fungus than regular Quebec children. And we want to do homeschooling, but they won't let us do homeschooling. So we're leaving. They found a little bit rust in the steam. Oh, it's a neglect. They found a little bit fungus on a the child. Then, oh, we found a neglect. It was a very strange uh, conversation that I had. And I spoke with a few others. I have a little bit of knowledge of Yiddish, so I was able to speak with a, a few of them, but I got very little information. Neighbors told Jason something else. They'd seen young girls pregnant and pushing strollers. We kept hearing rumors and reports that uh, children of the age of 12 and 13 were getting married. The rabbi, the leader of the community, always denied it. He said, I, I just follow Canadian law. I would love to be able to marry people younger than 16, but I don't do it because the law doesn't allow me to do it. But I, I spoke with a former member of the community who married someone at the age of, he was 25, but she was 15. So we, we do know that it was, it was happening, and it was happening, I guess, quite often. Armed with this information, Quebec authorities ordered the removal of some of the group's children. But Shlomo Hellbrands decided to put nearly every member of Lev Tahor in a bus and flee to Chatham, Ontario. When the group got to Chatham, all of a sudden it was like they were in a different country. And Quebec authorities called their counterparts in Ontario and asked them to go along with the judgment that was issued in Quebec. and. Uh, the laws did not allow that to happen. The, the order could not be enforced in Ontario. So they had to go back to court all over again. And you have to understand that getting to that point where they, were, they ordered the children removed took them a long time. Part of the reason was they had to find families that would accept all of these children. And I believe at one point they were trying to find families for all of the children in the sect, which was about 120 at the time. And the families had to be Jewish. They had to have knowledge of Yiddish because the children only spoke Yiddish. They had to be kosher and they had to be willing to do it and uh, accepting of 
a lot of potentially strange behavior because uh, literally you're tearing these children out from a community that is totally different from anything we know. And basically, it's as if you're taking them and, and dropping them off into a, a different country. And these kids were born into it. They had really no idea about life outside of this community. That's correct, yeah. So they, they get to Chatham. They start all over again. What ended up happening there? They're not there anymore. Am I right about that? That's right. I think it took about two months, and they got a judgment essentially to enforce the Quebec order. The community was, was on the move again. And they ended up all in a small rural town in Guatemala a few, a few months later. So I intersect with them completely by accident. I'm on vacation in the summer of 2014 in this little scenic resort area in Guatemala called Lake Atitlan. This is my Croft again. I'm visiting a friend there, and it's this really picturesque lake in Guatemala, and it's surrounded by these tiny little villages where, on this particular day, we were going to this village called San Juan La Laguna. You know, the women in this village tend to be quite small, and I see on the dusty streets of this small village, you know, a very, very tall man dressed entirely in this heavy black coat, dressed in the manner of the Orthodox Jews that I've seen in the United States, and but never in this part of the world. And, and so I started asking around, you know, what was going on with this community? And nobody really knew very much about who these folks were and what story they left behind in Canada. As it turned out, Lev Dehor didn't fit in with this community either. Some folks had said that they were had taken to swimming nude in the lake, and, you know, that was out of step with the local custom. Um, there was some gender-related stuff. Men didn't want to touch the hands of the female shopkeepers, and that was seen as sort of offensive and not in keeping with the spirit of this little village. So there was just a lot of discomfort with the differences of these new arrivals and the villagers were also very sensitive. You know, they did not want to be known internationally as intolerant people. But this was, this was a new thing. Maya's on vacation, so she doesn't report on anything initially. But she realizes there's a story there and returns that fall. I had heard that they had moved. About the time that I was there, the first time, they were getting expelled from the village. And shortly after I left, they left San Juan La Laguna altogether, and they went to Guatemala City. It's here in the country's capital that she arranges to interview a member of Love to Whore named Uriel Goldman. So as I was walking up to the building, I knew I was in the right place because I had seen the same outfits that I had seen in San Juan La Laguna, women and girls dressed in, in long black garments that covered them from head to toe, young Jewish men coming and going. And when I entered the building, I think there were three or four women and girls cleaning a huge pile of vegetables there in the foyer. And then that's when I noticed there was cloth, sheets or something like that hanging from the ceiling, separating the stairwell into two sides. And one side was for the women, one side was for the men. And that separation continued up the stairwell, up several stories. 
And I think initially, I believe if I remember correctly, Goldman met me in the lobby and he started to go up the right side of the stairs and I followed him and then was very quickly alerted to the fact that I was on the wrong side of this divider. So I had to go up the other side of the stairs. There were a lot of people coming and going. It was a very, very busy uh, place. How many people do you think were there? There were maybe 14 families living there at the time, and these are very large families. Some of them have, you know, seven, eight, nine children. So lots and lots of activity. So we get to Goldman's apartment, which is where the interview was to take place. You know, it looked haphazard. They had kind of hurriedly moved in. Um, it was very cramped in there. This was an old building. I don't know what it was, maybe an office building before. But they uh, welcomed me very warmly. I, I walked in. Uriel Goldman presented me with a plate of mangoes. We sat there, and there was a, a cockroach skittering across the kitchen, and he quickly swept it out the front door. And he seemed a bit under stress from having to look after this entire community and move people from place to place. You, you could tell it was wearing on him. We sat in his kitchen and talked for a couple of hours. There were some women and children in, in the back room, but I didn't get a chance to speak with them. Uh, actually, there was a child who came up and, you know, really, really cute and was curious about what I was doing there. Got a, the child had maybe a, a bruise or kind of a wound on his face that I was a little bit concerned about having heard the rumors. They keep running from accusations of child abuse. How did they respond to you asking them about that? They've been asked about that in the press a lot, and it's always full-throated denials, and they go directly to an accusation that it's anti-Semitic, politically motivated persecution. So I was kind of prepared for how they were going to respond. Uriel Goldman did get quite upset in revisiting the, the accusations. At one point, Lev Tahor even had an entire website dedicated to refuting the reporting about them and the allegations about them from the authorities and in the press. You have this great line in your story where you say, uh, with its competing claims of prejudice and criminality, the story of Lev Tahor reveals how the complexities of religious freedom can make it tricky to distinguish between radical devotion and dangerous extremism, which I thought so perfectly summed up their entire existence and the secular world's response to them. Can you sort of expand a bit more on that and, and tell me a little bit about how those dynamics were at play with this group? Well, I think it's something that comes up with a lot of reporting about different religious groups that are sort of out of the norm. It's difficult to to draw a line, especially when you're talking about the law. It's, this is going to be hard for me to put into words, but in a lot of places, you know, it's not, there, there were people who were calling Lev Tahor a cult. And there were some efforts in Israel, especially to sort of legally define what is a cult and what qualifies and sort of as a legal idea, it's very slippery. And especially in a country like the United States, where we grow up with this idea of religious freedom, and that any attempt to 
bring the powers of the state down on religious freedom is sort of antithetical to what we believe. So I was wrestling with that a lot, especially when I went there and I didn't see it's, you know, it's not like I was walking into a setting where people were being held prisoner precisely. A lot of these things are not obvious. A lot of this coercion and, you know, mental control is is internalized. And this is all happening also with, with very vulnerable people and young children who don't understand what's happening to them, uh, oftentimes until years later. So on one level, what I saw when I went there was a very happy community. And it's it's difficult to reconcile that sometimes with um, things you read in police reports and, and whatnot. I had I really was trying to meet with Hellbrands because at this point, this is a man who's sort of larger than life. You've been reading about him in the press for 30 years, and people were talking about him as if he was this almost magical being. You know, they talked about how persuasive he was and that he could just look at you and talk to you for 12 hours and you would just be mesmerized. I really wanted to to put a face to this legend. And I narrowly missed him when I was there. The day I was there, Hellbrands was off doing a bathing ritual, a mikvah, and I just missed him by maybe an hour. So I never got to meet him. Maya went home and wrote a piece about Lev Tahor for Foreign Policy magazine. I sort of lost the thread for a little while until I got a Google alert a couple of years later that Shlomo Hellbrands, the leader of Lev Tahor, had died in a drowning in southern Mexico. There was not a lot of information about how, what they were doing there, if they had relocated permanently or if they, why they were there. But Shlomo Hellbrands drowned, and there, I immediately had a lot of questions. Who would take over? What would happen to the group? Would it continue to stay together? Would it unravel? It would remain intact and be led by Shlomo Hellbrands' son, Nachman. There's a little bit of rumors that the group took kind of an even more authoritarian turn after that. And some families started to leave the group. That included one of Nachman's sisters and two of her children. So there was a 12 or 14-year-old girl who was to be married to an 18 or 20-year-old man. The family fled to New York City, but they were followed. The leaders went back and kidnapped the children, and this was all sort of done under the cover of night. There's talk of fake passports and using disguises to bring these children back to Latin America from New York. Eventually, they are arrested in, in a motel in Mexico by the FBI. Two of the leaders are currently in prison in the U.S. They've just been sentenced to 12 years for kidnapping and sex trafficking. And I know that a few others are in Guatemala um, fighting extradition to the U.S. One of those people is Yoel Weingarten, the man Jason spoke with back in 2013. And earlier this year, two of Yoel's brothers were extradited to the U.S. on charges relating to international kidnapping, conspiracy, and coercion of a minor. If convicted, they could face life in prison. Do you know where the group is now? So 
Um, there's, I still have my Google alert on them. And the story just gets more curious and more interesting. There were some sightings. For years and years, there have been rumors that they were hoping to go to Iran. I think there was a plan to go to Iraqi Kurdistan. I think they were spotted in Turkey at one point, Romania. And then recently, Uriel Goldman was rumored to be spotted in Brooklyn raising money for the group. So it looks like they're still in existence somewhere, somehow. And they're continuing to get followers. Why do you think that is? I It's hard to speculate, but I think that there is something probably very compelling about a community that seems to have so much certainty about life, about the world, especially in a time where so much seems so uncertain. There has to be some comfort and some attraction to people who believe that they know what it's all about and the right way to, to, to do things. I'm just curious about your own sense of um, how this reporting has impacted you and the work that you do moving forward. I think it behooves us as journalists and as people to kind of reach into what is it about humanity that creates people like this, communities like this. It helps us understand who we are better because a lot of times with groups like this, we on the outside like to think that we would never be susceptible. You know, we would never find ourselves in situations like this. And I don't know if that's always so true. Next time on True Crime Byline. When Adrian Humphreys covers a crime, he tries to do it as holistically as possible. And when it came to reporting on the murder of Tim Bosma, that meant everything from spending time with the family. They never forgot that life was something we're celebrating. To a jailhouse interview with one of the killers. At the end, I was ready to go, and I pushed the button. I, I kind of expected that the guards would come crashing through, but nothing happened. It was the only time when he looked dangerous. True Crime Byline is produced by Mitchell Stewart and me, Kathleen Goldhar. Our associate producer is Emily Morantz. Mixing and sound design by Mitchell Stewart. Graphics and artwork design by Bryce Hall. The executive producers for Post Media are Andrea Hill, Chris Gallifo, and Erica Tustin. Stuart Cox is the president of Antica Productions. Special thanks to Bert Archer, the editor-in-chief of the Montreal Gazette, and Lucinda Choden, the senior vice president of editorial for Post Media. Yeah.